My name is Alex Blue the fifth. I am a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm also the Thurgood Marshall Fellow in African American Studies at Dartmouth College. And starting next year, I will be Assistant Professor of Music at College of William & Mary. Welcome to Sketchbook Podcast, a discussion about creativity, preparation, and effort with artists, creators, and educators. As always, I'm your host, Daniel Montoya Jr. Alex, can I can I call you Alex? Is that fine? That's fine. Yes. Can I call you Blue? Yes, you can. Can I call Can I call you Cinco? Uh, yes. It might take some getting used to, but that's. Well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call you that. <laughs> I just I just wanted to make sure it was okay. Um, <laughs> We're going to talk about a lot of fun stuff and a lot of not so fun stuff. And I'm very excited about this because I've been thinking about how we're going to do this conversation. But I want to I want to address something right off the bat because I'm going to say stuff over the course of this conversation. I want to make it clear. You told me that it's OK for me to refer to black people as black. Correct. And can you explain why it is correct as opposed to me saying African-American? Uh, yes. So to me, black has more of a global reach than African-American. Not every black person is an African-American person. Uh, mm -hmm. Some people here in the US may just be African if they're not you know, trying to mm. become American citizens. They might be from Brazil. They might be you know, from anywhere. Uh, so sure. black to me speaks more towards collective experience in a way that African-American may not necessarily. Gotcha. Okay, that's good. And, th and that's why I asked you, I think I asked you this a number of weeks ago, because you know, we, we want to be politically correct, but also there's there's a problem with being too politically correct, where then we create problems in itself. So um, you can just call me Mexican-American if you'd like. Um, it doesn't really matter to me. Um, so Alex, we must first and foremost give a shout out to one Albert Albi Vela for bringing us together into this world. Back in 2017, when I was still running, I mean, um, programming and arranging The Guardians, we were planning to do a show mixing the music of Kanye West and Paul Hindemith. When told this idea, Albert was totally on board and said to me, and if I remember this correct, incorrectly, you can correct me, my friend who is a DJ said you can't just put a hip hop beat underneath Hindemith. Do you remember anything about this conversation with Albert? Are you, are you a DJ? Or am I remembering it wrong? What's, what's I, the deal? So I'm, I'm not a DJ. Um, I, do, <laughs> I do make beats and, and, and do all of that. And I am uh -huh. you know, involved in the hip hop world. But I do recall having this conversation because uh -huh. to me, there's nothing more um, disappointing than <laughs> just trying to take some you know, if you want to call it classical or whatever, be like, uh -huh. oh, we're going to make this hip for the youths now. Let's just, <laughs> let's just use this, uh -huh. this like James Brown, like let's use some Clyde Stubblefield, like break yeah. beats and put mm -hmm. it underneath Mozart. And now the kids love it. Like I can't, right, right. I can't stand that. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I've, I've experienced a lot of that on YouTube. You know, the people who are like revolutionizing the classics and they dubstep like adagio for strings. Right. It's, it's like, like nobody, nobody asked for this. <laughs> no one asked for this. No one needs this. Uh, well, well you know, hey, there's a lot of young, I won't, I won't stereotype, but there's a lot of young kids that need it. All right. That helps them um, write in their journals 
and, uh, you know, deal with their feelings, I think. Um, so I got to ask you, what did you think about that show then? You know, you, you worked a little bit on it as a brass tech. And then, you know, towards the end, when we were trying to figure out how to make things out work, you kind of started stepped into the design aspect working w- with us on that. Um, w- hopefully it wasn't just like putting a trap beat underneath in the mitt, but uh, what were your thoughts? Oh, on no. That? So one thing that I really appreciate about your arranging is that you actually take the time to see how you can morph each thing into the other. So you're mm-hmm. not just doing the oh, hip hop pieces. <laughs> yeah, no, you you made those pieces fit together in a way that, you know, I hadn't thought of before in the way that I hadn't conceived. So so no, I didn't feel that way about that show. I was nervous coming into it. <laughs> sure. But sure. uh and and you know, it's a general nervousness around the use of uh popular music, especially black mm-hmm. popular music styles in drum corps. Um, right, that's right. like kind of makes me nervous in, in general. Right, which, uh, which we'll talk about more for sure. Yeah, yeah, but no, I thought that 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 show did a really good job of not diluting either thing, uh, mm-hmm. making the work. Well, that's together. good. Well, the, the judges didn't think so, but that's you know we you can know, talk like, about that later too. <laughs> oh, we we will. We well, and I remember um, one judge saying to me, "I wish you would have played Gold Digger. I know that song." Uh, I was like what? What? Okay, you know, just probably could, probably because they did it on Glee. I don't know. You know what can I say? <laughs> um, so in 2018, even though Albert was let go as a Nebraska Hampshire Red was brought in, as was the mo of the previous core director, because anytime stu- anyone stood up to him, he felt disrespected and fired them immediately. Um, I brought you on as a music design consultant as we were going to continue to lean into the hip hop idea. This time using Chance the Rapper, Kendrick Lamar, more Kanye, and Mahler. Now, reading from your bio. As someone whose PhD dissertation is an ethnographic study of hip-hop in contemporary Detroit, Michigan, that explores narratives of death and dying and illuminates numerous ways the creation, performance, and consumption of hip-hop is used for spatial reorientation, identify formation, and other means in a rapidly changing city. That's pretty heavy. Um, My question is this... um, we pretty much hear every other type of music on the field. And aside from the little tidbits here and there by most notably the blue devils, why do you think there is an absence or lack of hip hop or R and B in the highest levels of drum corps and marching band? I think that the first reason that you don't really see it is because the people who are designing at the highest levels don't really have the experience with it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard to program something that you don't feel strongly about. Uh, so mm. it's not even necessarily that they aren't listening to hip hop. I mean, cause I'm, I'm sure some of them are, some of them probably sure. enjoy hip hop quite a bit, but it's not the same kind of association that they are used to making with the pageantry arts with say something like classical or, or even jazz or any of these other styles that have been so prevalent. So I mm-hmm. think that there's a bit of hesitation to begin with. Um, in programming hip hop. I also think that hip hop is a music that is so overtly digital um, that Mm. relies on a lot of digital techniques to be created, you know, correctly, quote unquote, at least to to represent it in the way that it's created. So it seems like a pretty tall task to get your, (laughs) I was about to say acoustic ensemble, but that's not necessarily the case. Right. It seems like a tall task, I think, to to ask your brass instruments to recreate 
that music, especially mm-hmm. since a lot of the the music behind the vocals in hip hop can often be you know loop driven or, mm-hmm. or driven by like these smaller samples that on their own, if they're not working in conjunction with vocals or anything like that, it's probably hard to make that as interesting on a football field versus Mm -hmm. in my headphones, I can listen to beats all day and it's completely fine. But the expectations in pageantry are different, right? So, and this is something that we ran into when I was working with you at Guardians anyway, trying to talk to judges and explain to them you know, there are different kinds of tension, like rhythm creates tension. Because I don't know if you recall a critique in which they were asking us to, there just needs to be more variety in this. There needs to be dynamic shaping. And I'm like, that's not the style. There does not need to be dynamic shaping in this. That completely goes against the style. Right. Yeah, I do remember. I I don't know if that's the infamous critique. I will never forget critique for the rest of my life and i wasn't even like really a part of it i was just kind of standing there but um yes i i do remember that and 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 you talked about you know the 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 kind of the struggles and critique your your nervousness of hearing what guardians was going to do in 2017 so when we when we kind of said we're going to jump more you know farther into the deep end in 2018 with that damned show um you know what what were sort of your thoughts on the path that guardians decided they were going to do for those two years um a core that's like, hey, we're gonna like we're gonna do this and we're gonna be good and try to do well, and then kind of seeing what the reaction was. And there's a stark difference between the reaction from like the kids and the audience members and from the people that were writing down numbers in the boxes later on. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I know a lot of you know, a lot of staff members at a lot of drum corps have various gripes about how things are judged. Mm-hmm. But I will say, as someone who is taught at a number of very stylistically different drum corps and it's been in a lot of critiques i have never seen judges more unprepared to judge something (laughs) than i did these two years at guardians and i mean in Uh in 17 i wasn't around as much in 18 i was at more critiques but completely completely unprepared um Mm -hmm. and the problem is they're trying to take what i would consider a pretty outdated rubric on you know how to judge pageantry in general right mm-hmm. um they're taking this really outdated rubric that is meant for uh, not to keep throwing classical under the bus but let's say they're used to sure. judging that they're used to mm-hmm. hearing like wind band literature that they know and when they hear something that's unfamiliar to them and they expect it to fit into those criteria, rather than say, hey, maybe there are different ways of achieving effect. Maybe there are different ways of getting crowd reaction. Maybe there are mm-hmm. different kinds of music that will like hit. Um, they just say, well, it doesn't have the peaks and valleys that I'm used to hearing in my Berlioz, so it's bad. <laughs> right, right. And and I forget what year, it might have been whichever year. It it kind of used some of the trombones, I think. It pulled uh one of the Kanye songs who Kanye sampled from Nina Simone, I think, um Strange Fruit, is that the name of it? Um mm-hmm. and it was sort of a HBCU type brassy dar 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 dar, you know, just this kind of style that in our UIL world of, you know, tone and proper whatever that doesn't fit the rubric, as you were saying. And, you know, we see what the Blue Devils are doing visually. And I imagine the visual judges go out of their way to understand what drum corps are bringing to the table visually now. Do you feel that 
music judges are not doing that same kind of research. <laughs> I don't know how much I'm shooting myself in the foot. <laughs> um, well, there's no critiques this year, Alex. So maybe they'll forget by next year. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, should I should I disclose where I'm working or? Uh, it, we, uh, it, we'll, we'll talk about it and it's in your, bi- I mean, you put it on your bio. Okay, I mean, you, cool. you are a brass instructor for the blue devil. Cool. Um, yeah. And so, so that's another place that I've noticed firsthand that they have very particular ideas for like what a brass ensemble is supposed to sound like. Sure. Um, and it's a lot less about everybody sounding the same and mm-hmm. like there are a lot of different characteristic sounds, but they only have, an idea of one characteristic sound and everybody is supposed to sound exactly like that. I, uh-huh. you know, I was at Mardi Gras this past February and I got to hear a lot of uh, HBCU bands mm-hmm. completely blown away. And I've always loved HBCU bands, but I was sure. thinking to myself, man, they would get torn apart by DCI judges. <laughs> of course they would. Which is ridiculous because you want to talk about general effect, you want to talk about affect, nobody, mm-hmm. nobody oh, can get a yeah. crowd as excited as an HBCU band. Oh, for sure. The human jukebox? Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's so, I saw them, right? When I Oh, was, God. <laughs> yeah. And thinking to myself, wow, DCI brass judges would hate this. For sure. And it's, for sure. and it's really, it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad that there's not more variance in the sounds that are accepted in the activity, but sure, sure. And and nowhere was this put on display more eloquently than the movie Drumline, um, where uh, Doctor Jones wanted to play Flight of the Bumblebee in the stands, mm-hmm. and they they wanted to hear some Snoop Doggy Dog. Right? Am I right? It's yeah. He you know <laughs> to the drum majors you know chagrin he says hit him with flight of the bumblebee (laughs) yes yes a classic movie representing everything that is right and wrong with pageantry in america (laughs) um in 2019, you were named Artistic Director of Guardians, which I assume also means you are the program coordinator as well. Uh, the show Unpeeled was, I'll say, considerably different than any production the Guardians put on in the five-year history as an open-class drum corps. Can you talk about maybe the thinking behind the change in the line f- design philosophy for that season? Sure. Uh, so, you know, they had moved me into that role you know, as Artistic Director, and I wanted to bring some kind of show that would be not just different for guardians per se, but different for open class Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. general. Um, Sure. And a lot of my friends would agree that I'm a a very cerebral person. Um, (laughs) So the challenge for me was to get a very cerebral idea, this idea of deconstruction, um, how to turn it into a tangible story on the field. And I had great design consultants, uh, Ryan Springler, Jesse Weldon, working with me to kind of actualize um, the show. So we ended Mm up, I guess, telling a story about, you know, the famous uh, Rene Magritte painting, The Son of Man, Mm -hmm. being deconstructed. Um, Now, it ran into some issues getting actualized the way I actually want it. As you know, like it never turns out exactly how you imagine it. Sure. But there were a lot of hurdles to the point where (laughs) the show that ended up being on the field was so different than the Mm. show that I imagined by the end, it almost didn't feel like my show. Oh, wow. Um, Which was, you know, I learned a lot. That was my first time being in that role 
for a group. Mm -hmm. So it was definitely a big learning curve. I learned about the types of things that work and don't work. I learned about, you know, trying to keep the students engaged. I learned about what's going to work with judges in particular, because there were some things that the judges were really, really, really into. Mm -hmm. And then other things that, you know, were difficult for them. So it was, it was really just kind of like my debut trying to get as weird. Well, I wanted to see how weird I could get, you know, <laughs> how far I could kind of stretch things. Uh -huh. And, you know, and this year, <laughs> can I talk about what this year was going to be? Well, well, uh, I was going to, I was going to read. So you can yeah, comment after my, just, I'm the interviewer, Alex, here we go. So in 2020, <laughs> the show y'all originally announced a plague, if I correct, was rumored to include the Cranberries and Lil Uzi Vert. Um, now, obviously, due to current global circumstances, y'all announced that the show would have changed had the DCI season continued. Um, so, yes, can you talk a little bit about maybe that? And maybe was this a return to more of the types of shows that maybe Guardians had done previously, not just because of the hip hop stuff, but because of the pop music and being a little bit more, I don't want to say superficial, but you call a show radioactive, you get what it's going to be. You call a show plague. I'm imagining, is it going to be plague and zombies? You know, I mean, you call a show unpeeled and it definitely makes you go, huh, right? Right. And it's funny you say it that way because the whole like, huh, thing is what I love. And I, <laughs> and I have learned that like some judges are going to go there with me and other ones are not. So it's easier. It's easier to just be like, here's the thing. Like, yeah. So plague, it's so funny. We started planning that show, you know, as a lot of design teams do it's you're in the middle of a season and you're thinking mm -hmm. about the next season so a lot of that show was on paper already before uh last year's season ended and i started to kind of plugging in these musical selections and thinking about the story i wanted to tell and it was mostly a show about the black plague but kind of merged with the idea of a zombie virus right mm -hmm. so like what if the black plague had actually been zombies um and yes, Cranberries uh, would have been in the show. Lily's Bert was in the show. I was really excited about the story that the show was telling. You know, uniforms were designed. Uh, some music had been written. I had uh -huh. cut audio tracks, all these things had happened. And then I remember <laughs> Jesse, one of the design consultants, kind of texted me it was just kind of like a little offhand text, maybe in October or November. Oh, she no. was like, oh, well, this is like kind of appropriate. And it was some a news article about, we didn't know it as coronavirus at the time, um, right. but about like just some plague. And we were both kind of like, oh, well, that's kind of like coincidental. And then a couple <laughs> more articles show up. Oh, no. And she's like, this is going to be really relevant. And, you know, we're still yeah. trying to be optimistic because we did not know at yeah, that time right. and then it became i started getting calls from uh doug thrower about um mm -hmm. you know i really don't think we should do this show and i was still trying to hold on to some little glimmer of like maybe like maybe and this was maybe like late december early january right but then by the time january rolled around we were all kind of like ah, we can't we can't do this we can't do this um I was sad to see it go. Everybody was, they had already and like shown the members what the show was going to be. The kids were mm -hmm. hyped. Everybody was really excited. And then it was right, just kind of right. like, well, yeah, we obviously cannot 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Circumstances decided otherwise, huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, I remember when we were doing that Kanye show, we were saying, please don't let Kanye do anything crazy while we're doing this show. And he didn't go quote unquote, I don't want to say crazy. That's inappropriate, but he didn't cause a scene until much later. Right. Um, but I mean, that's, that's the, that's the risk we all take as show designers, right? Like, can you imagine someone doing an R Kelly show? Oh my I mean, gosh. Yeah. You shouldn't. Has, but... <laughs> any, has anyone played R Kelly? Um, if there was a group to do it, I would have written for him, or it would be now the, uh, the M- uh, marching pride of Lawrence township. But I don't think anybody's done R Kelly, which is a shame. It's like, it's like Bill Cosby, and Michael Jackson. I mean, R Kelly, he's a talented singer, but it's, oh my God. <laughs> yeah. What, what a disaster. Seriously, seriously. Um, I, I usually, we start off fresh, like fun and comedic, but you know, I wanted to mention how we met, which was a good segue into Guardians. But um, is there anything else you'd like to add about, about the Guardians? You can plug stuff later on. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm currently blocked by certain people on social media, so I can't talk about it. But you know, Alex, what do you, what do you want to share? You, you're, you're still my friend. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I started plotting out what the replacement show was going to be. Ooh, here we go. Um, Give it to us. I, I it was called The Cure, wasn't it? And it was going to feature the music of The Cure <laughs> it was with not. a trap beat underneath it. It actually was untitled still. Um, oh, okay. But it, okay. the vibe of it was going to be pretty similar to uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Um, because <laughs> we're like, okay, well, we have to do something positive and fun and upbeat. And of course, right. me being the really sarcastic person I am, it's like, okay, well, how can I do that, but still make it so it's fun for me personally? Of course. Of uh, course. <laughs> so, yeah, it was going to be a lot of seemingly disparate events um, uh-huh. working together in like a kind of a stage show sort of thing. Oh, well, well, the good thing is we all have an hour, a year and a half to figure out what we're going to do next year, kind of. Yeah. So, um, so don't go be go be like the Simpsons and predict a plague or anything like that. Predict um <laughs> predict a new like, administration. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. It's it's my fault. <laughs> way to go. Way to go. <laughs> um, now, Alex, have you listened to any of Sketchbook podcasts before, or is this like your first experience with it? This is my first experience. I'm honestly not really a podcast person. Um, what? Yeah. What? There are a couple of podcasts that I really enjoy that are comedy mm-hmm. podcasts, but I typically. Sure. Yeah, I've I've just never I'm try, I'm trying to get well, more into them. I've had so many people kind of admonish me for for, for not <laughs> liking podcasts. Um, but yeah, sure. I typically if I'm sitting down listening to something, it's typically music. Right, right. But you're just so smart. I would imagine you would want to listen to people talk, you know, all the time. Uh, <laughs> and it's funny you mentioned Albert earlier. The number of times Albert has told me to start a podcast. <laughs> I've I've lost I've lost count. You've lost count. I'd listen. I'd listen. It depends. It depends what it's about. Like I want I I right. want the Alex Blue that I expect through this podcast. So <laughs> you, you better better make make sure you have tenure and you've signed a lifetime contract wherever else <laughs> exactly um, before you before you say probably what we need to hear you say. But all right, so let's do the David Copperfield. Where'd you grow up, Alex? Um, it's fastest to just say the Western U.S. Uh, mm. I have. Both of my parents were in the army, uh, so I was born in Alaska, um, and oh, then right. yeah, and then lived in Chicago, and then lived in Richmond, Virginia, oh. uh, then Denver, which is kind of the place that I consider myself as having grown up, you know, mm-hmm. former years. Then high school was in the DFW area, 
Uh, oh, which high school was that? Uh, Mans- can you say? Yeah, Mansfield High School. Oh, the Mansfield. That's right. All right. Cool. Cool. Um, yeah. So, you know, kind of everywhere, but I would say mm-hmm. like Denver and then, you know, Dallas area. Word, word. And what would you say your, I guess there's only one answer, your primary instrument? <laughs> <laughs> trombone. The trombone. You never got a chance to actually march your instrument in drum corps, did you? No, which I'm completely fine with. Um, <laughs> I, I think that it's being used well now, but I'm just thinking about how much I would have disliked marching with a trombone while I was doing drum corps. Sure, sure. I, I, I like the trombone. It's a, it's a voice I miss when I write for bands or drum corps that don't have it. But, you know, yeah. y'all got to lug that thing around, long arms. And, right. That's what I'm really thinking know. about. Like, I enjoy teaching it and drum corps uh-huh. just fine. I'm just thinking yeah. about how much I would have disliked having two instruments with me all the time. Sure, sure. Now, I've only come to know you the last three or four years, but were you a typical trombone attitude personality in high school and college? Because you don't seem that way right now. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, were you annoying? Were you loud? <laughs> were you, uh, okay, you know, then. just... <laughs> then no, uh, then no, I was, I was very atypical then. <laughs> I mean, they're the, they're the guys that are always like causing problems and they just, you know, oh, yeah, jacking that, around in the back. Yeah, that definitely was, was not me. I mean, there were, I'm not going to call these people out by name. A couple of people. You can, it's okay. <laughs> I don't know if they'll listen to it, but a couple of guys who I was in high school band with, these trombone players, Vince and Joseph, who, you know, we would occasionally get into some stupid stuff. It usually wasn't during rehearsal. It was usually after when you're supposed to be putting your things away. We end up oh, in, the, yes. in the instrument locker room and suddenly somebody hits dumped like a hundred bouncy balls into the ground and we're like pelting each other. So <laughs> that would happen, but I wasn't disruptive in rehearsal. Or I see. Like that. I see. Now, was that because of your military uh, upbringing or what? Yes. Yeah. I am. Um, on time for things mm-hmm. <laughs> and i am not at least i'm not disruptive in that sort of way <laughs> but pop but uh popular uh country people would call you disruptive based on your, yeah. your facebook posts and whatnot of oh course. sure yeah, so, and that's fine which well we'll get to that in a sec now i do my research on facebook as much as possible and it was exhausting on yours because you really like liverpool football club don't you <laughs> Yes, they are one of the loves of my life um, uh-huh. and have been since I was a child. Yes, I love And, and how'd that come up? Because of, of Alaska or what? I mean, I, I... <laughs> so it's, it's odd, you know, Liverpool and then the Dutch national team are like the two teams that I have loved since I was young. And it all stems back to these. So I grew up playing and it sends back to these videos that my dad used to buy that were about like building your soccer skills that he would want oh, me to watch. Uh-huh. And I can very specifically remember these Dutch players and then some players for Liverpool FC. And I was so enamored with them from a very young age. Mm-hmm. Um, so my allegiance was just set in stone, you know, by the time I was 10. And, ah. and it has remained that way. I see, I see. And and you are a Denver Broncos fan. I am. Denver Broncos, Denver Nuggets. Yeah. And I don't really so you're a big Mellow fan? Is that is that what this is all? <laughs> I'm I miss Mellow. Uh, mm. uh, come he, on. He, is he is he is okay, him, Derek Rose or Chris Paul, who is the most uh lack of a waste of potential, so to speak. I don't Derek, want to say waste of potential, but Derek Rose. Oh, Derek Rose, man. That, oh, the knees, God. the knees, man. Mr. Glass, right? Oh, God. And he, he, was, he was one of the 
most exciting athletes I've ever seen. He he was going to bring the Bulls back, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but Mello, man, he never really reached his potential. I I think. I, <sighs> or did he? <laughs> I don't, you know, I he deserves, I, Mello deserves rings. I'm kind of sad that he doesn't have them. Um, right, right. It was either like the pieces around him were never quite strong enough. And he wasn't, he's not like a LeBron who can somehow win a ring with nobody, you know? Right. I, yeah, that still yeah. blows my mind. It was like he was out there playing with a bunch of like brooms <laughs> or like, I'm thinking of like to, to quote like Stanley from the office, like, a, you know, an upturn, upturn room with a bucket for a head. That was like, <laughs> that was like LeBron's whole squad. And he still got a chip. How do you do that? <laughs> Man. The, oh yeah. And, and down three, one too. I mean, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? This wasn't going to be a question, but now we're on LeBron. Is LeBron the greatest of all time then Alex? <gasps> he is. You're nodding. You're nodding. He is. I don't, I don't care what kind of flack I get for saying this. And everybody wants to talk about, Oh, there are different eras. Like, le- do we really think LeBron would not have made it? in that era do you see how diesel that guy is dude like, he's he, jacked he is like the most physically dominant player that mm-hmm. has played basketball and Agreed. like Agreed. and i love jordan and you know i got to see jordan play sometimes but jordan was a skinny 6'6 mm-hmm. um i just have a hard time thinking that lebron wouldn't have been dominant in that era wow you know man yeah and, just, and jordan had pippen and kerr and as you mentioned who did a lebron have <laughs> right and it's yeah if we're obviously if we're just measuring this by rings then you're inclined to say jordan's the best sure but uh, i'm kind of i gotta go with lebron on this all right. Hey, I, I don't, I don't, I don't disagree. I don't argue. You know, whatever. Um, I also uh, don't think Tom Brady's the greatest quarterback of all time because I don't just go off of rings. But you know, whatever, whatever. That's probably a hot take. Who knows? Uh, you know. Oh, do you? You're shaking your head. I, I'm shaking my head because I don't know if it's a hot take. I. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. You know so who is the greatest quarterback of all time? See, one? that's why I'm like trying to. I I want to say John Elway, but I'm also like mm. very disappointed in John Elway lately. <laughs> As a GM, <laughs> hey man, he got Tim Tebow. Oh my god! <laughs> I there was one good Tim Tebow moment where he won a, the first play in overtime versus the Steelers. That was great. Yeah, um, that was shockingly fun to watch. But but, but that was it. Yeah, but. Yeah, it's kind of the, the greatest quarterback thing. I don't know. I just, mm-hmm. uh, the Broncos fan of me can't agree that it's Brady. Right. No, 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 no. I get you. Because you can't, you can't separate Brady and Belichick. Now, if Brady wins with Tampa Bay, then oh. we have to, then, then it's like, okay. I'll, I'll say he's the greatest ever if he, if he <laughs> yeah. wins <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Well, um, thank God you're not a Cowboys fan because those folks are the worst. Worst, worst sports fans. And I, I will <laughs> say this. I am on the record right now. Everybody can listen to this. I will say it to your face. Worst <laughs> sports fans in the world and i'm you know and soccer is my favorite sport and you know i'm a liverpool fan so like i can't stand manchester united i can't stand manchester city i can't stand everton but i will hang out with all of those fans all day before being in a room with five cowboys fans i will not they're the worst how can you how can you be so how can you be so cavalier so cocky when like 
a lot of these Cowboys fans weren't alive the last time they won a Super Bowl. That's correct. That is very correct. Like, but they, they pump their chests, man. Like, they sure you, do. Like, you actually haven't seen this team be good. <laughs> what are your... <laughs> Uh, they got the they've got the second best stadium in the uh, NFL. So yeah, I'm assuming I'm assuming uh, the L.A. or the the Raiders are probably better stadiums at this point. So I don't know. Whatever. I mean, U.S. Bank in in Minneapolis. Oh, the Minnesota one. That one's pretty good. Yeah, ridiculous. Yep. Yeah. Oh well. Hey well. All right. So um, now for the important stuff, Alex. We're going to talk about food. All right. You're a world traveler, like literally a world traveler. Um, so I'm hoping your answers are like the craziest, like uh, the guy, uh, the guy who traveled around the world and went all over the place to eat. Do you have a favorite taco? It can be breakfast, lunch or dinner anywhere you've been. What's your favorite taco? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's tough. Um, some of the best tacos I've had were actually in Dallas area. Um, like there was a spot called Taco Lady in Denton. That was like in the back of a... Um, um, like a washateria. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> awesome. But, oh my God, that's tough. Probably some of the best ones I've had have been on Milpas Street, which is in Santa Barbara, California. Almost every restaurant there has incredible tacos. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually, I don't know if you've seen in the news uh, how Texas Monthly has a taco editor. Um, no. So it's actually a friend of mine from from back in the day. Uh, oh, and I've eaten some amazing tacos in a lot of places in the U.S. on his recommendation. Typically, if okay. I go somewhere, I'll text him and ask where I need to go. Um, oh, that's a that's a that's awesome. So all of your yeah. answers are going to be great on this, then. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, uh, Sochi in Houston. Mm. I've had mm-hmm. this amazing like puffed like rabbit taco there. That is just wow, out of control. Good. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of good tacos out there. <laughs> there, there is, but there's also a lot of bad tacos, and I'm glad you didn't say torchies. No, no, come on, you asked me what the best taco like. Well, well, see, you don't listen to my podcast. Um, so many people love chewies and torchies, and those are both the wrong answers for anything that has to do with good <laughs> or best anything. So, yeah, no, my answer for those things would never be a chain restaurant. Thank you. Ever. All right, good, good, good. All right, favorite burger. I don't know if you eat burgers, but when you did, favorite um, burger. <laughs> There was a spot in kind of like Orange County-ish, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but it's, oh, maybe it's 50-50, Slayer's 50-50, and it's like a half beef, half bacon patty, Oh wow! and there was peanut butter on it, and yeah, that's a great burger. Um, if I'm thinking like best fast food burger, that's probably Good Times in Denver, um, good times in Denver. Oh boy. All right. All right. Uh, man, it's so funny. I feel so on the spot. I'm like trying to recall all of the burgers that I've had in my life, you know? Um, but the, well, as long as you don't say in and out, we're fine. No, like <laughs> again, <laughs> places are not going <laughs> to factor in here. Yeah. I think, um, maybe that one Slater's or actually there is a, oh. There's a Jamaican restaurant. I'm so I'm in Providence, Rhode Island now. Okay. There's a Jamaican restaurant here that strangely has great burgers and also like a soul food, like a, a chicken and fish joint here. Mm. That burger blew my mind. And oh. I only tried it because the owner of the restaurant was doing an interview where people asked, like, oh, what do you eat here? 
And she's uh-huh. like, obviously all my food's good, but sometimes <laughs> I just get the burger and it's, she th- said it was the best burger in town and she is correct. All right. What's the name of that place? Bucktown. Bucktown. Yeah, all right. All Bucktown. right. Well, next time I find myself in Rhode Island, um, not sure when that'll happen. Um, do you have, <laughs> I don't know if you eat barbecue, but do you have favorite barbecue? I like all the Lockhart places, you know, um, but I will have to kind of stand for my cultural heritage here. My parents are from the Carolinas and uh, I am diehard Carolina barbecue. Um, the best barbecue I can remember tasting was actually like when a friend's dad raised a pig, you know, <laughs> what? And yeah, <laughs> raised a pig, you know, from youth to adulthood and uh-huh. then did the whole like, like dug the pit in the backyard and everything. So the really the best barbecue I've eaten has been just made by people at their homes and not really at restaurants, but sure. I had good barbecue in Lockhart and also uh, Bledsoe's out in Southern Mm -hmm. California. Um, Okay. Shockingly good. Wow. All right. All right. As I texted you, I asked this question of everybody on the podcast. So if you're listening and think, why am I asking a black man this question? Favorite fried chicken, Alex. (laughs) Um, I will give a shout out to my mom first, um, and then to myself because I make, (laughs) I make incredible fried chicken. Um, but then even though I said, I'm not really into chain places, there's a smallest chain called Gus's, Uh um, love their fried chicken. Yeah. Um, (sighs) fast food, fast food, Popeye's, I guess. I love Popeyes. Spicy, their spicy chicken. It's not bad. Yeah, it does the trick. I um, I can tell you briefly about my least favorite <laughs> fried chicken. Let's, is it Church's? No, it's actually this really, really fancy restaurant in Northern California. Uh oh. All right. Um. And yeah, I'm like, how much can I? How much can I say? <laughs> without like There's, burning is bridges the chef listening like you know don't want to burn possible bridges out there of but, course of course you know it's just considered to be a really nice restaurant it's one of a few um owned by like this very revered chef and restaurant proprietor mm-hmm, and i had mm-hmm. heard so many good things about this fried chicken and it's hard to be there at the correct time to get it and stuff so I managed to be there at the right time one day and underwhelmed is not a strong enough word (laughs) for what I experienced. It was almost like water in terms of not having no taste. (laughs) Like it was, it was beyond under seasoned, right? It was just the, the saddest affair. And, you know, I can, I can tell you this whole story sometime. I've actually told this story at storytelling events because it's like a really funny kind of long story. But okay. one of the peaks of the story was finding myself sitting at this bar top, you know, finally had the chicken in front of me. I'm excited to eat. And I'm kind uh-huh. of digging in, eating. And I have this existential moment where I look around the room and notice that everyone is using a fork and knife except for me. <laughs> And yes, I was the only black person in the room. I thought um, that's where we were going to go, but okay. All so right, all right. I look up and I'm just like holding a piece of chicken in my hand and everybody else is just clinking away. And it was one of the more bizarre moments in my life. <sighs> oh my gosh. 
Yeah, I would love to hear that full story one day. So maybe on the uh, maybe on the deleted scenes on the uh, the extras on the DVD for this. Sure. Um, now, anyone who follows you on the gram um, knows you. Uh, you're a mixologist of sorts. Um, what is your favorite liqueur of choice, or can you even name just one, or or what? I can't name just one. So I do have, you know, a background as a as a bartender. Um, it's how I paid for my master's degree in addition oh, to wow. playing gigs. Uh, it mm-hmm. was what I was doing in Detroit as well while I was there doing field research for my mm-hmm. PhD. Um, so if I'm talking just like base liquors that I really, really love, gin is kind of like my first love when it comes to that. And I like a, mm-hmm. a good London dry, like beef eaters are really good workhorse gin. Um, I've really started to love various like Amaro's. Um, so like Fernet is one of my current favorites, Campari. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And I, I have a, a weekly like Zoom cocktail hour with some friends on sure, Saturdays. Sure. And it's been really mm-hmm. fun to kind of dig back into those skills, you know, and, and kind of explore. Because I, I have like a decently sized collection. Um, so it's been nice to, you know, pull out some bottles that I haven't used in a while and sure. Yeah. Yeah. It does look very impressive, but you also make drinks that I don't know that I'd ever know to ask for. You're like, (laughs) Oh, here's a, a duck rosé with blah, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't, what does it have in it? But you know, that's fine. There are so many, you know, the, the bar thing in the U S has gotten so big in the last 10 years. And there are these incredible bartenders writing these recipes. Um, and sometimes they get compiled in books or various websites like Punch or Imbibe or things like that. So if I can't think of anything, I often will go on one of those and just type in whatever liquor I'm wanting to use. And it's going to pull up like 70 recipes, you know, that, but, you know, I might not have all the ingredients for all of them, but chances are there's going to be a lot that I can make. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm constantly trying to try new recipes. Right, right. Yeah, it looks like it looks like it. Um, how do you take your coffee, Alex? Uh, black. No sugar, no cream, nothing. No, um, I'm typically more of a tea drinker, um, but I do oh. drink my coffee black. Yeah. Okay, okay. You, you're one of three people that could have made the airplane joke on, on this podcast. <laughs> but, I mean, I technically we could all make that joke, right? I don't yeah, know. I, I mean. so you have a bachelor in trombone performance from texas tech university a master's in jazz studies from the university of north texas man it's a good thing you march drum corps because uh without that how would you know how to teach you don't have a music ed degree right come on (laughs) so i it's funny i started music ed at texas tech and i switched to performance in the middle because it was like you know this texas band director life is not for me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so I saw that early on and switched I ended up my jazz studies masters is actually a specialization in pedagogy so I like did kind of end up doing the education thing a bit Um, but yeah it's kind of funny how I ended up teaching so much when I in my bachelor's (laughs) was like oh I don't want it like this isn't what I'm going to do and now it's the main thing that I do (laughs) Well, well, well uh, the world is better for it, even though it is jazz. You know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not into the jazz. Just play the right notes, as they say on The Office. <laughs> 
So as you mentioned, and as your bio says, you were recently appointed as assistant professor of music at the College of William and Mary. Your appointment begins this fall upon the completion uh, of, oh, next, 2021. Yeah, it starts oh, next year my. because I actually have a postdoc at Dartmouth this year. That's right. The 2019-2021 Thurgood Marshall Fellow in African and African-American Studies at Dartmouth. I didn't get that far. I messed up. I'm sorry. Um, In this new position at the College of William & Mary, you will teach courses on race and music, sound studies, and hip-hop production, and will continue your research in the areas of sound, race, identity, and urban space. Now, I fully admit my lack of knowledge in all of this. I haven't been in a real college in quite some time. So forgive me for my ignorance, but this seems like something extremely new for the field of higher education and musicology. Um, is is hip hop, for lack of a better term, going legit? <laughs> Academia, whatnot. You know, this is. I'm glad you. I'm glad you asked me this because I, I don't necessarily agonize over this, but I've been thinking about it a lot because we were talking about jazz a second ago. When jazz has been so, you know, entrenched in the academy now, it's mm-hmm. it's legitimized now because of its proximity to classical music. Um, uh-huh. And because you can get a degree in it, right? So more people are willing to consider it real music now. Um, <laughs> God, right? Honestly, that's how it's viewed, right? The right. Yeah. administrators are like, oh, "Okay, well, we can get money from students coming to study this thing," uh, so it's legitimized in that way. Hip hop. I am not on a mission to do that to hip hop in mm-hmm. the way that's been done to jazz. I think that hip hop is an amazing area for study. I think we can learn a lot about the humanities and humanity itself through studying hip hop. We can obviously mm-hmm. learn things about race and about living in various locations. Like there's a lot to be gained from studying hip hop and that's what I am aiming to do. Um, the hip hop production thing is because you know, there are students who are either trying to have those careers outside of the college or while they're in college, or it's seen as kind of a performing ensemble sort of credit, you know? Mm -hmm. I think it would be a cold day in hell before there was like a major in hip hop Uh at a college. And I think that's good. Um, That's like not a thing that I want to happen, Um, Mm -hmm. but it is a way for me to teach different things about musical construction, different things about form, different theoretical takes that, that students aren't necessarily getting in a, in a school of music, especially if it's primarily oriented around, you know, like a Western European music theory or something like that. And a lot of hip hop is built off of some of those tenets and a lot of the understandings of hip hop are built off of those things, but there's so many things that are stylistically and theoretically different. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think being able to teach those things to students can not only show them, you know, because obviously, you know, gain appreciation is is one of those things that, oh, it's good for students to be able to gain an appreciation for that. But for me, it's more important to teach people how to think differently, mm-hmm. um, for them to realize that there are multiple ways to approach a problem. And I think that, setting hip-hop production can do that. 
Yeah, yeah. And, and you would have the opportunity to teach everyone how Migos invented the triplet um, when it comes to rap. <laughs> Literally did not exist before the Migos. So. <laughs> Boy, what would we have done with music? But it was just all eighth notes and, and it, quarter note rap. What were we thinking? <laughs> Um, now you, you're not a Texas boy, but you have a very close affiliation with a big fan. What are your thoughts on sparkling water, specifically Topo Chico, Alex? Okay. So Topo Chico is sparkling water. Um, and then there are other things that claim to be sparkling water that are not necessarily, um, People in Michigan did not understand my obsession with Topo Chico because it started being available when I was living in Detroit and I was bartending and I was bringing cases of it in. Nice. Good for you. And people didn't really understand or I was taking it home and my roommates were like, like, what's the deal with this? I'm like, no, you don't get it. This (laughs) (laughs) This is the best sparkling one. I haven't found it here yet, but I have been looking. Oh, that's a drag. Yeah. No, Topo Chico is... Uh, the eau de vie, as I say, the, the water of life. You're, you're so you're so well well learned here. Your friend just dropped <laughs> some French on us. You know, I'm just I got to just pull little tidbits from yeah from all these yeah. places. Yeah. Did you introduce Albert or Albert to you, or just it uh, happened at the same time? Albert introduced me <gasps> at the Blue Devils. No, it was before. It was while we were at Oregon. Oh, okay. I was, that's right. You were the brass caption hit at the Crusaders, and Albie was on your brass staff. That's how it all. That's right. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, now you did march the Vanguard of Santa Clara. Uh, what years did you march them? Two thousand six and two thousand seven. What were those two shows? Because I don't remember the years. Uh, Moto Perpetuo was two thousand six. After uh, Moto, mm-hmm. I got horribly injured mid-season and was not Wait, able to were you mr moto no that oh was, i thought that's where this was gonna go yeah no that was not me oh. um oh, okay. <laughs> and then 2007 was the exclamation point which was pronounced eureka correct correct you were part of you were part of like key never got to do his trilogies he always wanted to do trilogy shows and they what was the third one that they announced but they never did after eureka oh man well three uh, three that was spelled with the three. That's it, right. That's that was right. 2008. I feel like the third one was supposed to come in 2009 and they decided to scrap the idea. I can't recall right. what it was though. Yeah. I, I feel like everywhere he's been, he's always like, I want to do another trilogy show. And it just never really happened. You get two out of the way, but you know, whatever, whatever. So and, cool. And you marched the baritone, the euphonium or what? Uh, both. I marched the euphonium in 2006 and the baritone in 2007. Awesome. All right. That's cool. That's cool. Did you have fun marching drum corps? Alex? <laughs> you know, I was the stereotypical cranky age out in 2007. Um, and, you know, I was coming back from being injured. I was like, this is my last chance to do this. It was a bonus. Uh-huh. It was a bonus year. And I oh. was, I just really had low patience for <laughs> some of the younger people in my section. Uh huh. Um, uh huh. Which, looking back on it, I'm like, well, I shouldn't have acted like that. That was unnecessary. Mm. Um, but I did have a lot of fun. You know, made some of my closest friends, obviously, while I was doing that. And, I mean, I'm still in the activity, miraculously. For better or for worse. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, I know you've been asked this question before. And it's a trigger question, but I don't care. Who's your favorite rapper and why is it Eminem? 
<laughs> okay, the twist of the end absolutely <laughs> made it a trigger. So for, for the record, <laughs> listeners out there, Eminem is not my favorite rapper. Um, <laughs> he is he is not. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna disparage his name right now, but I will just suffice it to say Eminem is not my favorite rapper. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorites kind of have changed over the years. So for a while, it was just MF Doom was hands down mm-hmm. my favorite, um, and I still love Doom, and he's still top five for me. Uh, but Lately, it's been Freddie Gibbs um, and this whole trio uh, by Griselda. So that's um, these three rappers, Conway, Benny the Butcher, and West Side Gun. These guys from Buffalo, New York. They're, mm-hmm. they're by far my favorite right now. And oddly mm-hmm. enough, they're on Eminem's label. Um, oh, oh, okay. So in a weird way, Eminem is your favorite rapper. So I got you. Right. what's funny is if you listen <laughs> to their latest record which came out i want to say november 2019 or so um there's no features on it until there's a bonus track at the end and eminem does a verse on that and i'm like it's probably smart for you to stay out of the way for this (laughs) for this entire record it's like it's like kanye letting uh letting nikki have that full verse right like yes just just don't cut it um but but he's from the D, and it's so cold in the D. He, shout out to T-Baby. Um, T-Baby. So, <laughs> he is from the D. He's done a lot of great things for Detroit. I think he is the greatest freestyler who's ever existed on Earth. Oh, um, wow. Like, I'll say that, hands down. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. in terms of just like the lyrical ability and stuff, Detroit has so many dope MCs. Like his best friend, for instance, Royce the Five Nine one of the greatest MCs, Elzai, one of the greatest MCs, like mm-hmm. Black Milk is a producer MC out of there. You got Marv One, got Invincible. There's just so many, and I'm just talking about one particular kind of um, style of hip hop in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And there's like a ton of the street rap. There's just, there's a lot. Wow. There are so many good MCs in Detroit. And, I'll, you know, a lot of them would say that that Eminem is the best, but I'm not sure if it's like a like a paying penance, right? Thing, yeah, or or what? You know, sure, sure. So ba- basically, Eminem's good, but Dre really kind of is the reason why Eminem became Eminem, right? Like he could have picked someone else, maybe, or or well, what? I mean, I think in the way that we see him now, definitely would not have happened without Dre. Um, it's it's I don't know what would have happened to him. You know, without that, I'm sure we would still know his music, but I don't know if mm-hmm. he would be like the greatest selling hip hop artist right. of all time. He wouldn't be Oscar winning rapper Eminem, Marshall Mathers. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But but seriously, Eminem is the best out of Vanilla Ice, Snow, Third Base, Post Malone, Macklemore, Paul Wall, <laughs> Kid Rock, Lil Dicky, Machine Gun Kelly, G Easy, Mac Miller, and Weird Al. Right. I love Paul Wall. <laughs> so... <laughs> And, you know, we're talking apples and oranges in terms of style, obviously. Um, well, in this case, it's like onions because they're all white. But, you know. <laughs> oh, man, I love Paul Wall. Mm-hmm. But what about Beastie Boys? Number two behind Eminem? <laughs> the Beastie Boys definitely represent a really important particular time and place for me. And I 
definitely can't knock what the Beastie Boys did for mm-hmm. the music or the culture. Like Beastie Boys are amazing. Do I think they're the dopest MCs ever? <laughs> no, I do not. Mm. But I still like their music. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, no, no, no. I got you. I got you. Um, now you've taught at the Spirit of Atlanta, the Colts, and the Cavaliers. And since 2017, I've mentioned you've been on the brass staff at the Blue Devils Drum and Bugle Corps. Um, what's that like, and how does it feel to work for your home team's rival? <laughs> it's it's fun working there. Um, mm-hmm. I love working with that brass staff, um, and there's usually only a few of us there at a time. But it's very familial, you know. It's, there's a lot of respect and a lot of trust. It's, you know, I had worked with John Meehan the first few years. Was going to be working with John and Chip this year. Um, and I can tell you, like my experience working with John is a lot of, you know, he knows that he can trust all of us to do things properly. So it's a lot mm-hmm. of him just like getting out of the way and letting us do our thing or we we know how to there's a good back and forth you know between all of us the students are amazing there um my my so i primarily work with low brass sometimes i'm in front of the entire horn line but i'm primarily a low brass person there and the euphonium section is just the goofiest like <laughs> though they're they're adults you know but they're very much like my, <laughs> but they're very much like my kids you know sure so we had his we had a Zoom call maybe a month ago and we did these little breakout rooms. So I was talking to the youths and it was so funny how instantly goofy they just returned to being. <laughs> you know, seeing each other, just the dynamic is, is mm-hmm. really fun. And it's it, it's nice working at a place where I feel like I can just go do my job without someone trying to influence the way that I do it because they know I'm gonna do my job well. Um, so, you know, I do my job and I go do whatever else I needed to do for the day. And it's, it's nice. It's been a really, really enjoyable time working there. Mm. How many rings do you have, Alex? I have two. Oh, must be nice. Anyway, you know, but it's, I look at it like, (laughs) man, I'm, I'm like two for three. I'm like, what happened? You know? Yeah. What, what did happen? Was that a Vanguard? That was um, <laughs> that was a, that was a pretty good show though. Yeah, oh yeah. And it was your so in a way you've got three rings because that was <laughs> I'm, your not home gonna, team. I'm not gonna <laughs> say that. Um, it was funny on that Zoom call that I just mentioned where somebody was talking about like you know Blue Dolls have either won or gotten second in all these years, and Chip very like quickly on the side is just like sorry. Uh, (laughs) yeah that's pretty fantastic well good for you alex for being associated with so north texas texas tech had a good basketball team that one year i mean geez you're just you're uh you're the golden boy aren't you everything you touch turns to gold i mean if that's what you want to say sure i don't see it that way Okay. All right. Everywhere you leave turns to gold. Yeah, How about that, that seems more okay. accurate. All right. All right. Oh, great. Well, <laughs> blue, maybe the Blue Devils will finally be good once they get rid of yep, you. Right? It's my absence that causes success. <laughs> yeah. All right. We're going to settle this once and for all for the tape, for the ages, for the culture. Why do you hate Mahler too? <laughs> I, oh man, hate. I was going to mm. say it's a strong word. It is, but I think you really do. The thing is, Daniel, I just, (laughs) I think it's so overrated. 
I think it's <laughs> so overrated. I think that having to sit for an hour, 45 minutes for 25 to 35 good minutes is not a good return on investment for me. Uh, and I know that there would be some comments about, oh, well, there's like development and building all that. But those things are supposed to be interesting too. Um, <laughs> like I have no problem with long pieces of music. You know, mm -hmm. it's just, I find myself uninterested in so many parts of Mahler too, which uh -huh. is such a bummer because I think it's the, the start is so compelling and it stays mm -hmm. compelling for, you know, a good 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> and then uh -huh. I think there's such a drop off for me and I find myself looking for things to grab onto, looking mm -hmm. for melodies that I think are interesting. And to me, they're just not really there until I get to like the brass corral. Um, so, right. so, so, so you could do without like the middle 30 minutes, basically. <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, and, and I don't even like dislike Mahler or anything. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say there are any composers who I just vehemently dislike. Mm -hmm. It's just, I find some things a lot more compelling than others. Like I know I mentioned on your Facebook the other day that Barber one is my favorite. Yes. Um, yes, you did. And part of that is it's not that it's just like, it's not the brevity of it necessarily that makes it my favorite. It's that I think every literal second of that symphony is compelling. I don't, there's, sure. there's not a wasted like second in it to yeah. me. Um, everything drives the melody forward. Everything pulls you into the narrative, the way that he devolves that melody and kind of truncates it and augments it in that last movement and the ending, the fact that he's like Pickardy third psych, no Pickardy third for you. <laughs> it's, it's the payoff. I feel like that's the payoff that I really, really want in a piece like that. Because I'm like, how can you have this whole thing sound yeah, so yeah. sad? And then at the end, Oh, everything's fine. I just, cause yeah. Because it's not, it's not yeah. it's like Game of Thrones, except for the last season. We'll, we won't mention that one. Um, I, all right, I, I won't argue. I just wanted to hear your thoughts to put it on tape to find out. Um, but so, was it painful for you to listen to Guardians do it in 2018? Because they did Mahler too. No, because you're playing the parts that I think are good. <laughs> all right, all right, that works. <laughs> I will allow that. I will allow that. Um, we're going to go off script here because I don't care. Um, so, hey, the Pulitzer Prize winners were just announced this week. And Anthony Davis won for the Central Park Five. Not now, Anthony Davis. He's black, correct? Mm -hmm. And the Central Park Five is about five black uh, men in New York, which our president famously called for the killing publicly. Yes, Michael just said in the pinch them up. Yeah, just like hey, kill them because they're black, and I don't like black people. Um, what? What? I don't, I don't want to ask this question in a weird way because it sounds like I, I always hate these questions, but. Hey, a black guy won the Pulitzer writing about something that's very important, not only in American history, I mean, but black history and everything like that. I mean, that's that's a pretty big effing deal, right? It, yeah, it is. Um, it's one of those things, and I kind of feel similarly to like Kendrick, you know, it's one of those things where you just never really expected it to happen because for so long, the work produced by black Americans has been viewed as well, good for popular culture, you know, but not considered like 
serious or elevated right. culture or something like that, which is one of the more amazing things about Kendrick, actually. Uh, but it's really stunning to see like a, a black work of art be taken so seriously because mm -hmm. it's not as if there haven't been great works this entire time <laughs> by, by right. black producer by black writers by you mm -hmm. know it's been such a, a major part of the fabric of this country for so long that you know if it takes until 2020 to like get a little bit of shine it, it's kind of startling i guess sure because the mo for my entire life has been like oh no like black people don't do serious things like you're supposed to be out there rapping or playing basketball or like uh -huh. what have you you know not right 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 so so and i don't come from any sort of sense of of knowledge or experience right like in case y'all don't know this i'm not black everybody i'm i'm, I'm mexican-american people would call me a coconut quote-unquote brown on the outside one on the inside you know whatever um but you know my observation of all that is like you know when sydney sydney potier won for um in the heat of the night right like he was the first one and then denzel wins like it seems like when they honor black actors and actresses it's because they're playing either a historical figure or they're playing something out of the the uh, construct the stereotype of of what a black man or woman is which is so weird to me why denzel was nominated for training day because that was so crazy but he was damn good in that movie I, um you know it's interesting because i think that happens maybe to individual actors and stuff but in terms of films that get nominated it's like only slave films right like it's uh, except for black panther sure but, but I'm gonna. I, I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to steal your thunder here. But Black Panther wasn't the best comic book movie that's come out. It was really, really good. But anyway, I just. Um, yeah. No, know. it wasn't the best. But for me, it was. <laughs> sure, I get you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah. But you're was... right. It's it's the if you're if you're in a slave film if you're white or black in a slave film it's uh what's the, it's critically acclaimed, regardless, right? Yeah, it's like Hollywood is is interested in showing this one particular narrative over and over mm -hmm. and over. Yeah. Right. So, so would you say when Moonlight won and they did win eventually, um, that's similar <laughs> to Central Park five, sort of this, like we've been doing good stuff forever and you just acknowledged, and it's about queer and black. Yes. Yes. That was shocking. That uh -huh. was so shocking. And I mean, I was so thrilled about it, but it was, I was in disbelief. Yeah. Sure. And, and then the Academy, um, kept up their wokeness by having Green Book win. <laughs> oh boy! One step forward, five steps back. Right? Yeah. Like, let's have this amazing film about this black musician going to the south, but actually, it's a film about white heroism and the the, the what is it the the white uh, savior? There's that yeah. white savior. Yeah. And, and did Mahershala win for that movie? Also, I actually can't recall. Off the top I think he won. I think he won for Green Book, and he's won for for Moonlight, for Moonlight. right? Yeah, dude. I first saw him on uh, House of uh, House of Cards when he was uh, he was on there, and I was like, that that actor's bad a. And then now he's like legit. I mean, yeah, he's he's ba. He's ba. So um, when going through your Facebook likes, a few things stuck out to me, Alex. Number one, you like Bonobos. Um. I would have to go back and figure out when I liked that. That might have been like an early Facebook adopter like. Because, you know, I've been on Facebook since 2005. So, yep. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, you still like it. So it's still, it, we're going to cancel you. The, can, the culture has canceled you. Walmart owns Bonobos now. Now I cannot pronounce the name of this group, but I think it's two sisters and my wife turned me on to them because she heard them on NPR and I love it. Uh, I-B-E-Y-I. Uh, yeah. So. Oh God, I love. Incredible. Oh my God. Incredible. So good. So great. Yeah. Good for you. I'm very excited. You like MIA. You know, that needs to be unliked now. Uh, okay. Is she, is it cause she's, is she an anti-vaxxer or what is she, yeah. what is, what's her, okay. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you're bringing this up because I'm like, I need to go back and actually like see what. Yeah, you should. You should. Yeah. God, but I loved her music too. Oh, I so know. That was a, that was a real bummer for me. That bad girls video when they're on the cars. Yes. Oh, come on. Amazing. Yeah. Oh man. Um, you like Frontier Airlines. Uh, you know, Denver. Oh, oh, okay. All right. Uh, you like 30 Rock and The Office, both significantly superior to Friends in any and every way. I, I just do not get why people like Friends. I... The same people that like Chewies for their creamy jalapeno <laughs> dip. Yeah, that show, ugh, we don't even need to talk about. That show is We won't. We're office. not going to waste time. Yeah. Um, you, don't, you don't like sketchbook podcasts, but you've never listened, so that's fine. Um, you don't like Montoya music, and that's okay, because you, you don't program my music. And you don't like general effect, which is weird because you always win general effect. So, you know, <laughs> and so, this is the game I play with everyone. Basically, why don't you like me? That's fine. Um, you know, I f- forgot that this was even a thing that existed on Facebook. It's kind of like poking, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. You, you get a poke randomly. Like, how's that still a thing? Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, on January 28th, 2018, you posted something quite controversial. And for this listening... Everyone have your safe spaces and trigger words handy. I quote, I feel like you too sounds the way that lettuce tastes. I have a lot of questions. Number one, how dare you? <laughs> okay, just, I, first of all, I am not walking that back. I stand by that <laughs> statement. That is something that I repost every time it comes yes, up in my memory. You do. you That one and the Mahler one. You repost those two every year. I am... I 100% stand by what I said. So, again, lettuce is not bad, (laughs) but it's not good. It's basically water. Yeah, it's crunchy water, right? So, U2 is not a bad band. I don't find them compelling. When they're playing, it's like there is music happening and there is time passing. Uh Uh-huh. And... There's nothing particularly memorable memorable about that to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I understand that just like lettuce, there are some people who really like you too. <laughs> I just, I'm never going to go to a restaurant and order the lettuce. <laughs> all right. All right. I imagine you posted that. Well, it was 2018. So it wasn't when Apple put everyone got a free U2 album on their iPods. No. Uh, gosh. What was it? It was the songs of Venice. Was it the, the Super Bowl or I don't know. It, it, it might have been. It might have been Super Bowl, like around that. Po- yep, January twenty eighth, twenty eighteen. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, you, you're just full of hot takes. You basically just don't like any music I do. But you know. I I live for hot takes. I yeah, like to talk as spicy as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So so the stereotype is true about black people and spices with food is what you're saying, right? We like to season our food. And you know, I like spi- spices too. So I typically would say, well, I'm not going to speak for all black people, but I think I can speak for all black people when I say that we like our food seasoned. 
I, I don't know. I don't want to say it's just black people, but like, I don't oh, know why no. people don't like spices. Oh, I don't get it either. But yeah. there are a lot of people out there who apparently don't like spices. Uh, yeah. It, all those TikToks proven all the chicken was bought out, but none of the spices, you know, so um, greatest fan by uh, greatest fanboy moment ever. Andre 3000, Erica Badu, Owen Wilson, or Patrick Duffy. <laughs> I feel like I need to tell a little bit about <laughs> all these stories. Uh, you should. Go so, um, Erica Badu, definitely favorite fanboy moment. She's one of my favorite artists ever. And so all of these things happened for your listeners. All these things happened while I was working at Whole Foods in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they all came into the store at various times. Uh, Andre was super cool. It was really good meeting him. Uh, Owen Wilson was hilarious. So with Owen Wilson, I sold wine to Owen Wilson on two separate occasions um, when he was in town for the holidays. And the very first time I talked to him, I was just stocking some shelves and I heard his voice and I knew I recognized it even though I hadn't like looked at his face. So I stood up and was like, oh, kind of surprised. <laughs> and he said to me, I need my family to think I spent a lot of money on wine, but I don't want to spend <laughs> a lot of money on wine. Can you uh-huh. help me? And I was so, like, I just loved him even more, you know, from that moment. I had so much respect <laughs> for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Patrick Duffy. So, <laughs> who, who, who was uh, Bobby Ewing on Dallas, correct? Yes, Bobby Ewing on Dallas. Also the dad from Step by Step, uh, which is how I knew him, you know, from my childhood. So TGIF, I was working behind the bar at this. It was one of the first Whole Foods to have like the whole beer bar, wine bar thing in it. Mm -hmm. I'm behind the bar and none other than TV's Patrick Duffy approaches. (laughs) And in my head, I'm just like, oh, wow, that's Patrick Duffy. You know, he's in town for the Dallas reboot thing. Um, So, you know, I ask him what he needs. I get him a glass of wine and he pays and everything. And then, you know, where people would, would typically like (laughs) tip you or something (laughs) like that. What he does is he grabs a bar napkin and autographs it and slides it to me and says, here you go, kid. (laughs) And then he disappeared into the night. (laughs) And I stood there holding this autograph completely shook. (laughs) And then when it finally hit me what had happened, I had to rush to the back of the store because I was about to just erupt in laughter. (laughs) So I get to the back of the house and my boss, Brandy, is asking me what happened. And I show her this thing and tell her story. And she immediately like pinned it up on the wall. (laughs) So that was, uh, oh man, that was Uh, amazing. It's just the the audacity of of any person to think, Hey, I'm going to do you a favor. Here's my signature. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was. That <laughs> and was... the fact that it's step-by-steps TV dad, Patrick Duffy. <laughs> yes, of, yes. One of my favorite moments in bartending, for sure. For sure. You have a lot of good stories, Alex. You know, I feel like we could talk for four hours. All right. <clears throat> Here comes a really long wind-up. And for the listeners at home, I did text Alex beforehand and asked if we could talk about a particular subject, and he welcomed the conversation. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a few of your posts, public posts, on Facebook. Um, and uh, I, I don't know if it needs to be a trigger warning or whatever, but we're basically going to talk about being black, um, Alex being black. 
Um, here's the first post. This is the most recent post. Um, we are recording this on Friday, May 8th, 2020. So if you're aware of news, you know what's going on in the world. Believe me, I'm mad as hell about this latest instance in a long, long line of extrajudicial lynchings of unarmed black men. But can y'all please stop sharing the video? How much do we need to contribute to circulating trauma porn? Do I have to see my brother gunned down just to twist the knife? That is the fact that there won't be justice for it. We already know vintage video, video footage won't bring us justice. That's been proven beyond a shadow of doubt. Some white people will watch the video, feel bad, be outraged. Then absolutely nothing will change and we'll be sharing the next video. What good is this whole raising awareness thing doing? It's almost entirely performative. A lot of woke people out here in all the wrong places. Police force ain't woke. Local government ain't woke. Do I have some grand solution outside of organizing, protesting, voting, voting, boycotting, or even armed resistance? Not really. But it's also not really my problem to solve. I'm the prey in this scenario, and it appears that the whole stop killing us strategy falls on deaf ears when coming from black voices. I just can't watch another video of a black man being murdered for being black. Can't do it. I'm existentially nauseated. Next post. If you still think he was kneeling to protest a melody that Francis Scott Key stole from a British drinking song, or because he hates the military, even though a vet was the one who recommended the kneel to show reverence for the fallen while still protesting, just unfriend me. Y'all are exhausting. Third post. It was 10 years ago that cops had a gun in my back while pinning me against the hood of my car in Santa Clara, suspected of stealing a Slurpee for which I was holding a receipt. And there have been so many reminders along the way of how the state country feels about my life. I'm cellularly, molecularly tired. Fourth post. The brilliant, tragic thing about This Is America is that millions of people can watch it, write think pieces, post Easter egg articles, etc., 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 talk about how powerful and moving it is without actually doing anything to address the miserable conditions referenced in the video without actively fighting to dismantle the structures of white supremacy, without doing work, which sadly is the point. Talk about meta narrative. Now, Alex, I realize that's all pretty heavy stuff. And again, I'm not black. I can't speak anything about any part of being black in this world. Um, but this is all a sad reality for black folks in this country. And while I don't want to minimize the plight of black men and women, I want to steer this conversation to be more specifically about the marching arts, specifically DCI, since this is something that I can relate to. Maybe our listeners can relate to. I remember the original core director of Guardian saying that in 2017, they had the highest percentage of black members of any drum corps that year, world class or open class. And I don't know if it was 100% true. And I don't remember the exact percentage but it was barely in the double digits. And when you look at the names of black designers throughout the history of DCI, it's also not a whole lot. It seems the majority are percussion and color guard designers, Ralph Hardiman being one of the most famous percussion teachers, arrangers, and clinicians. But when it comes to brass arrangers or drill designers, arguably two of the most visible roles in any drum corps design team, the only names I can think of are Jim Prime Jr., Daryl Pemberton, and Tony Hall. And I fully apologize if I forget anyone or I'm not aware of any young and rising stars in DCI marching band. So finally, after that long windup, here's the pitch. Is it hard to be black and be in DCI as a member, a teacher, and or a designer? Um, the short answer is yes. Um, so 
I'll speak first to being a member um, at a particularly white, uh, affluent drum corps. Um, so my first year, I was the only black person in the horn line. Uh, there was one black person in the color guard and one or two in percussion. Um, my brass caption head was black, um, but he was the only... Was that Dr. Nick Williams? It was. Okay. But he was the, as far as I can recall, he was the only black staff member. Uh, so one of the things that was so difficult was dealing with constant racist comments and jokes from the membership. Um in and outside of my section. So back in those days, I don't know if they still do it, but you know, we would stretch as a horn line in the beginning of the day. And that was a time for people to, to tell jokes and all of that. And 90% of the time they were racist jokes. Um, 90 to 95% of the time. Uh, that was the same in 2007, actually. Um, so it was a constant feeling of it's it's beyond being the butt of the joke it was like well they do not have any respect for me as a human being um or it's you know people thinking that because we're cool or because we're friends so they can make little comments or say particular things and you know at that time i was not as i'll just say like that stuff that i absolutely would not begin to put up with now um at that time, when you're like younger and trying to fit into the group and everything, it's like you don't necessarily know you're weighing the cost benefit, right? Like if I say something about this, am I going to be completely ostracized from this group? Am I going to be completely like viewed as the outcast or kind of left out of everything? And that's sadly a skill that I had to start building in high school um, because I was dealing with that, you know, in high school band as well. I, one of my band directors is making jokes about me picking cotton in high school band. What? Yes. Um, I dealt with it in college as well. Um, so it was like a very constant thread, you know, throughout my trying to participate in this activity, which I like hold so dear. Mm -hmm. Um, as a teacher, I, have sadly gotten very used to being the black person on staff. There have been some times where there have been like maybe one other, like Cavaliers, there was one on drum staff. Uh, when I taught Spirit, not the first time, because I taught them in 2009, but when I taught them again in 2014, that's the most black people I've ever taught with on one staff. Like the brass staff alone had maybe five black people on it. Um, mm -hmm. That's an anomaly. Um, then when I got to Oregon, there were two of us at Blue Devils. Until this year, I was the only black person on that staff from the time I joined in 2017. Um, and it's it's isolating. Um, it, it adds some extra labor if there are black students because understandably they want to talk to you and I want them to talk to me and I like want to hold them dear, but it also, it's more taxing, you know, it's, it's more exhaustion than your day. And there's a complete, 
there's a complete lack of respect from so many judges and so many critiques. That's the thing I can can recall the most about like teaching while black in DCI. It's just immediately being taken less seriously by judges and critique or treated as as if I don't know what I'm talking about. I remember going to one critique in maybe 2011 or 12 where uh, the Colts were playing a show that had some jazz in it. And I had been working, it would have been 2013 because I had graduated. So I was working with the horn line um, on this particular style. And I go to critique and the judge is trying to tell me that they're playing it incorrectly. Now jazz and drum corps is like another discussion, but I can tell you that the way that they were playing was very stylistically correct. And he was trying to tell me it wasn't. So I was telling him that I disagreed. And he asked me, well, I don't know if you have any experience like playing or if you've ever taught jazz before. And I said, actually, I have a master's degree in jazz studies from the University of North Texas. And he tried to kind of walk it back and change his tune. But that, that kind of thing happens to me all the time in critique. If I'm by myself, it happens to me all the time. They just assume that I'm not supposed to be there. Um, and as a designer, still, I'm still thinking about critique, going into critique. Yeah, it's just constantly having my skills or my intent and all those things questioned because I'm always the stranger in the room. And there have been a lot of, there's been a, you know, a big push and initiative lately in drum corps about like the inclusion of, you know, like women or like women identified people which is great and obviously very important. And there have unfortunately been like all these sexual assault cases coming more and more to light. Obviously a thing that's been happening in drum corps for a very long time. Thank God it's finally coming to light, but the focuses have been there. But every time something like that happens, I feel maybe a little more alienated because it's like my issue is never gonna be seen as like a major initiative in drum corps. There are all these issues of access for people of color, particularly black people, even being able to do drum corps now. Like it's not a thing that is as available outside of like very particular band worlds, right? That have a lot of money in them. Uh, so, you know, there might be a black person here or there, but it's not a regular major thing that's accessible. You know, there were some drum corps like Spirit of New Jersey, Spirit of Newark that, that were all black or things like that, that existed in the past that has existed, but it's not the typical. Right. So it's, I look at all these pushes to have, you know, more women on staff, more women on drum corps. And, you know, it's maybe wrong to say, well, there have always been a lot of women in color guard and things like that. But I, I don't feel like, there's ever really been a big lack of women in the activity. I can't recall watching a drum corps video unless it's like scouts or cabbies and not even scouts now, right? But unless it's scouts or cabbies, I can't recall watching a video and wondering where the women are. But I always wonder where the black people are, like unless I'm watching one of those almost all black drum corps that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. Like one of my best friends marched Phantom 2010 and not only is he black, he is six foot five, I want to say, in like that all white uniform. And the way that he sticks out 
in that drum corps, I was like, I know this so well. It's like such a regular feeling to be kind mm -hmm. of, to be it, you know? Right. It's, and I know you read all those Facebook posts of mine and a recurring theme is me talking about being exhausted, retired. And that's, that's how it is. And I keep, I keep doing it. I stay in it because, you know, I'm thinking about the black students who do end up coming through the Trump Corps, who do like need someone who, all those things that I wish I had had in various mm -hmm. steps. I want to be able to do that, but it is tiring. Do you, to your knowledge, are there any other uh, black men or women that are in the positions that you are in terms of design uh, as a coordinator slash artistic, what, you know, everyone's got different titles at different drum corps. And I, I racked my brain and, you know, you can't tell someone's race by their name unless it's something seriously like ethnic from, a, you know, a different country. And you know, some even, you know, some men are named Kim and some women are named Alex. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard to tell all this stuff. But to your knowledge, other than mentioning Tony and Daryl and Jim, you know, are there more out there? I think that I'm actually trying to recall his name right now. I think that Colts had, or maybe still have a black artistic director. I don't know if they still do, but they very recently did. Don Click? Um, no. Or is he the coordinator? Well, oh man, I hate that I can't recall his name. But I know at least within the last few years that okay. there was um, a black artistic director there. But apart from him, no, can't think of another. Right, and and I'm not I'm not trying to appropriate your this this discussion by any stretch. But you could you could stretch that to be almost sort of any ethnic my any ethnic minority group. There, you know, Richard Saucedo, I think is other than me, the only brass arranger that isn't white, right? Um, and then, you know, are there any, you know, Lindsay Schuler, female drill writer, she's writing for the legends. And, um, you know, so it, you, you hate to, to pinpoint it, but the facts remain, if you're not a white male, you're not designing at the highest levels for DCI. Yeah, that's, you know, and like you said, you hate to pinpoint it that way, but I mean, patterns reveal themselves, right? And this isn't a mm -hmm. pattern that's hard to find. Just go to any drum corps staff page, you know, Correct. from now, go back as far in time as you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're going to struggle to find people who aren't white dudes in those positions. Right. And, and, you know, to put this in a comparison with professional sports, you know, you look at baseball and I remember reading an article years ago, um, not actually could have been very recent about how there's a lack of black, uh, like just, I, I don't want to say Dominic, obviously Dominican, uh, you know, the Latin American countries heavy into baseball. But when you look at, I don't want to call it like just a normal black American kind of, but there's a very limited amount of that. And they talked about what you said, access and how baseball has become a rich sport where if you're not involved in club baseball and you're not having a pitching coach and a hitting coach and all these things, a lot of things that a lot of Americans can't afford, but specifically people of color have a hard time and drum corps is becoming club band. Um, 100%. When, you're, when you're, when you're looking at a $4,000 fee, um, it's not just, I mean, yes. And people will say it. Yes. Well, there's poor white people that can't do it. And you're 1 million percent correct. Poor people can't do drum corps. Um, but looking at the facts, people of color, 
minorities are the ones that are hit the most and they can't do drum corps. And, and as you mentioned, one of your, your, your posts, I don't have the solution. I, I can't say, well, what if everyone just did drum corps for free? Because that's not the solution. But when we talk about representation from the members, representation from the staff, representation in design, the reason you don't have that in people of color is because the access isn't there for us. And there's not an easy fix to that, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, unless we want to talk, I mean, <laughs> it's not an easy fix. But if we're thinking about how school district lines are drawn, right? You can trace a, <laughs> you can trace a lot of stuff back to that. Like, oh, yeah. Who's going to what school? Who has access to what money when it comes mm-hmm. to like public education? It's like starting in middle school, but especially the high school level, because that's when the exposure to all this stuff kind of begins, right? And then like, where are the kids in those band programs who want to do music? Where are they going to college? What access do they have to things at those colleges? Yeah. So again, not an easy fix, but it's also a problem that it doesn't seem like anyone is really interested in addressing, you know? Yes. And, and you mentioned this and I, and it's, just, it's a, uh, this is all a very touchy subject, obviously, to talk about. And we don't want to put any one disenfranchised group against another. And that's not what we're doing by talking about women versus minorities. And, you know, this goes in band music and orchestral music. Why are we not playing more music by women? And why are we not, you know, and we're all on the same team of being non-white males. I mean, that's basically, yes. it's white males versus everyone else when you when you kind of look at it. So we're fighting for the same things, but it does seem the shot, the spotlight is 100% on Let's just get women in there. Let's get women. And like you said, nobody's going, hey, there's there's some Asian kids. There's some black kids. There's some Mexican kids. There's some Indian kids. Why don't we have them come? There might be boys too, but it's okay. No, 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 no. They're not women. We need to increase the women thing. We need to open up our blinders and go like disenfranchised is disenfranchised regardless of whether they're male or female. Right. And even with the addition of women, it's white women. It's white women, Right. That's yeah. that's who is being at correct. Like how many I'm I'm trying to think of how many black women I know who have been involved in the activity at all. And I can probably count them on two hands. Yeah. I would and, and you probably can count more than I can. That's for sure. Yeah. And- so I mean they Yeah, if we're talking about disenfranchisement and all of that. Like it's, it's worse. It's worse for black women, you know, even than it is for me. Mm-hmm. I can't think of, I can't think of any black women who have ever been in some kind of like, like for brass anyway, like captioned head leadership role or ranger. And I'm sure there have been some, but I don't know them. Yeah. I'm right there with you. Cause you know, you look at DCI and you know, they're, they're, they're doing what they can you know, after the whole scandal that existed, continues to exist and will exist, you know, they're pumping up the women in DCI thing. Um, and the two shining examples come from the same core and they're two white women. Um, and you look at the broadcasts that they have up there and I think everybody is white um, up there. And you're right. It's, it's, I don't want to say they're not making the conscious choice, but they're not making the conscious choice to, Hey, shouldn't we show something else there are more than just this involved with the activity and you're right i don't i don't know do they even want to i I don't know the answer to that (laughs) i guess they're they're telling that the answer is is they're they're giving the answer 
yeah. every time they, exactly. they do what they do. The actions, right? right? It's the actions that are speaking. Oh, so, and, and you, you answered this question. You didn't really deep dive deep into it. So I guess why, why you just, you continue on because you want to be an example. You want the exposure for someone coming up that is 19, 20 going like, Hey, I can have that job too, because someone's there and you, you, and you're, you're not going to see, and I've talked about this with other people on the podcast. We are not going to see the fruits of any of our labor for any, some sort of quote unquote equality or, or, you know, we're, we're doing our part to plant the seeds and hope that maybe they grow in for our kids or potentially more than likely our grand, you know, grand, great grandkids for some sort of tolerance is the word. I don't know what to use, but that's why you, that's why you you keep doing what you're doing with the blue devils, with guardians, et cetera, because you want to be an example for someone to want to be in your position in the future. Right? Yeah. I, I have to hope that eventually things are going to be equitable and there's going to be representation and that all these activities we do are actually going to reflect the place that we, the country in which we live, you know, the world in which we live. Mm -hmm. I have to at least have a small glimmer of hope that that will happen at some point. Um, So, you know, that's why I continue doing this. Like it's, yeah, like you said, it won't happen in our lifetime, but hopefully it'll happen and we'll have contributed to that. Sure, sure. So I, I, I don't want to say not that DCI is listening, not that not that everybody is of importance is listening, but there are people that listen to this and who knows, maybe they bend the ear of somebody. Is there something you want to say to people about <laughs> drum corps, marching band, DCI? I don't I don't I don't know. Here's your platform, Alex. <laughs> Uh, like talking about what we've been talking about the last few minutes. If you'd like to, yeah, w- without curse words, because I want to keep this monetized in some way, shape, or form. Not sure, that I make any money from this. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been, you know, being careful to, <laughs> to not curse. <laughs> what, what? It's just as much as drum corps wants to, as a whole, consider itself some kind of like big liberal arts activity and people who are in the arts tend to consider themselves being liberal and forgiving. And we really understand how the world works. Often people don't back that up with any kind of action. Like they let the fact that they play music stand in for like their politics or stand in for any kind of direct action. So rather than saying, maybe we should go, talk to the school board or talk to the local government about redistricting or about they're not being funding for this particular program. Maybe we should get in there and get our hands dirty. They think, okay, well, we can play music for Prague and we've done our duty when it comes to like showing how much we care about the world. Yes, I think music's important. Yes, I think music is a good way to express feeling and to teach people lots of lessons. But we're kidding ourselves if we think that just playing band music or just doing drum corps is going to cause any kind of change. If that was going to happen, things would already be different because we're not the first people who have made music and we won't be the last. So without any kind of direct political action, we're going to be in the same situation forever. And we can keep feeling good about ourselves because we 
played a show that, you know, was about overturning oppression or something like that. But it still costs $4,500 to march your drum corps, and it's still full of white people. So you can hang out feeling good about yourself, but you haven't actually done anything to have real impact on the lives of, of marginalized people, people of color, any of that. So I think I'm just ready for people to put their money where their mouth is and to stop hiding behind this grand artifice of like the arts as some kind of actionable thing. It's a means to express what we want to do. It's not actually doing something. And that might sound sacrilegious to a bunch of artists or musicians who think music can change the world. But just speaking from my personal experience, music is a tool that you have like in your toolkit when you're on the way to change something. You can't just push play on your iPod and expect anything to happen. Like you have to go do things. That's a uh, that's heavy. That's awesome. It's uh, it reminds me of how every time there's a school shooting, every day people post that Leonard Bernstein quote. Our response will be music, and it's like, yeah, that's not that that doesn't that hasn't worked. Music doesn't stop bullets. It's it you doesn't. Know. <laughs> the the only thing that stopped bullets is a virus because we're all had to stay home. Exactly. So. Yeah, and that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, you know, music's great, and we can talk about our feelings and everything, but. It's not a replacement for direct action. Alex, it feels awkward to start talking about something a little lighter, <laughs> but <laughs> this is the other topic I knew I just had to talk to you about the podcast and maybe this will, who knows, maybe may feel very passionate about this subject also, and this may go off a deep end, but um, for the folks listening to us at home and nowhere else because they are smart and are socially isolating, Please describe in excruciating detail what shoes you are currently wearing. <laughs> I am actually, believe it or not, currently barefoot because I don't like wearing sneakers on this rug in my bedroom. Um, the sneakers, that. the sneakers that I was wearing when I went to get my garbage can and recycling from the curb <laughs> uh-huh. and bring it back were the um, Nike Air Max One Tokyo Maze. Yes. Um, I love those shoes. So it's one of my favorite shoes. I love the Air Max One silhouette to begin with. But the shoes, you know, one is black with a white maze pattern and one is white with a black maze pattern. They came with a ton of different tongue tabs, a ton of different laces, so you can really make them look the way you want. Um, They feel really good on foot. And they're just... I try to keep shoes in my collection that I never see anyone else wear. And I can say that I currently like the shoes that are, you know, behind me right now on my floor, they're all shoes that I have not seen out in the wild. I've only seen them on my feet. Obviously other people have them. Right. But I have yet to encounter anyone wearing any of the shoes <laughs> that I have right now. So, so are you going to sell your Tokyo mazes now that you know I have them? Is that what's going on? Um, I haven't seen you wear them. Oh, well, I'd run and get them, but there's a podcast. Going on, so. <laughs> um, so, so Alex, I know this is, I know the answer to this. Are you a sneakerhead? Yeah, I am. <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. How many, how many sneakers do you own currently? Currently I'm at a conservative 50 right now. Currently. Okay. 
But you would say that's like 50 of quality as oh. opposed to like, oh, I own 300 and only like 75 are really good. You know, No, like, like <laughs> I have 50 pairs that I want to wear. You know, Ooh, want, okay. I want to wear all of them. Now you mentioned the Air Max 1. Do you have a preferred weapon of choice, a favorite silhouette? Um, for Air Max or for just in, in, in Just in sneaker, sneaker general, general sneaker. I mean, that is one. Of, Air Max 1 is one of my favorite silhouettes. Uh, Air Force 1 Low. It's one of my favorite silhouettes. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Also, the the Air Force uh, Air Force One Special Force mids are mm-hmm. my that's my like beater shoe, my everyday shoe. Jeez, um, okay. These, <laughs> I'm like, they're like, I know they won't see it, but like that's this is like my beater shoe, Ooh, all black. Um, that's yeah, right. all black. Oh, that's a nice buckle right there. Yeah, yeah. So. I love those in terms of newer silhouettes, like Kyrie fives a lot. Mm. Um, I like, I thought you would have said like the SB dunk or something. I love some SB dunks. Actually, I think a pair might've just gotten delivered. Like while we were on this call, I got like a (laughs) a UPS email. Um, Uh But I mean, it's in my top five silhouette. I don't know that it's like my top, top, but sure, I do love I do love some SB dunks. Yes, yes. Now, um, loaded question: Thoughts on Kanye West and Yeezys? <laughs> Y'all can't see that he rolled his eyes instantly as I asked that question. This man, this man is is <laughs> he is going off the rails. He is going off the rails with these sneaker designs. So, the first few silhouettes, I was still like. I don't know if that's going to look good on my foot, but I thought the mm-hmm. silhouettes are dope. Sure. Then we started getting into the chunkier silhouettes. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, not really feeling it. And then it uh-huh. just kept. And now the latest one that you and I were talking about over text. That oh, my That God. looks like some kind of like pot sticker. Uh, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Dumpling, but pot stickers. Exactly. The, yeah. <laughs> I just. Or there were those slides that ended up like not coming oh, out. My- that looked yeah, like some that, weird, like symbiotic version of Crocs. Uh-huh. Yes. It's, I think that they're at the point where they know all they have to do is put Yeezy on something mm-hmm. and people will buy it. It's just the last few designs. It, it's hard for me to imagine somebody thinking, oh, this is going to be hot in the streets. It seemed a lot more like. <laughs> We're, we're just going to do whatever we want. This is a thing I think looks really cool and people are just mm-hmm. going to buy it. So I, I just, think you're wrong, man. I just am not, I am not feeling like the last four or five. <laughs> so I just can't, I just can't do it. Well, well, I'm, I'm sorry that I buy Yeezys and I review them. You can pay. Um, hey, everyone can, if you think a sneaker is hot and you think it looks good on your foot, then buy it. Like that's my rule with sneakers. I have sneakers that I think look great on me. Mm-hmm. I like loud sneakers. I like real different looking sneakers. And yeah. if you if it works for you, then get it. I just know sure. that like the Yeezy silhouette does not work for me. So. Right, right. I I I'm right there with you. Wear, wear what you want to wear, um, and don't and f the haters. You know, even if it's a general release, I have tons of general releases. I yeah. like them. They have no hype whatsoever. Yeah, same. But I don't care. I don't care. So, so what made you a sneakerhead? How did you get into the sneakers, Alex? <laughs> I 
would say that I've been a sneakerhead my whole life, but I've only really been able to afford sneakers the last few <laughs> years. I got you there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was really just the ability to start buying them mm-hmm. <laughs> that that kind of pushed me to the point where I'm like, I'm spending 25% of my time in quarantine looking at sneakers. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't have to, you don't have to, you know, tone it down here, man. You, this is a, a pro sneaker podcast. But I can remember watching, you know, the NBA when I was younger and I very vividly remember these particular shoes, like the Shaq Gnosis, the Reebok Shaq Gnosis, or like the Allen Iverson's like questions that came out in Reebok, or like even the old Sean Kemp's. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, I remember Jordan's. Uh, I remember the Pippins. It's like the big air logo <laughs> on the side. But I think one of the first sneakers, and I've and I don't foam posits don't look good on me. But like when the Penny Hardaways were first coming mm-hmm. out, I was just blown away. I thought it was like the hottest looking sneaker. Yeah. Um, See, so yeah, I, I mean, it came from you know, watching a lot of basketball as a kid. Sure. Sure. Little Penny, man. Yep. I love little Penny. Little Penny. Fun. So, um, what are your thoughts on today's sneaker game? Cause you said you wanted to talk about, about the, the game. I am. I, I, I think you alluded a little bit to it, but let's, let's, let's dig in. Yeah. I'm so irritated by how out of proportion the resale game has become <laughs> like, because like I was just saying, I have, a very curated collection of sneakers, right? Uh-huh. I want to wear every single sneaker I have. It really bothers me that people will use bots to buy sneakers that they have no intention of wearing in a size that they don't even wear just because they know they can flip it for an absurd amount of money. Especially these, these SB dunks are getting out of control dude who, who who who's responsible for bringing him back and getting the hype it's it's um is an artist right like a i don't know if he's a musician or rapper or whatever i don't mean to imply that musicians are not rappers and vice versa um i i just I, there was someone that just started doing him recently and all of a sudden it it was i mean was it travis cross he didn't do uh, it dunk, you right? mean travis scott travis scott sorry travis cross <laughs> travis cross out in california uh, travis <laughs> scott no 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 um yeah, who I don't remember. I actually, yeah, I'm actually not sure who was doing it. It definitely wasn't him who started it. Right, um, right. I know that, so like I skated a little bit when I was younger and stuff like that too. And it's mm-hmm. been, I know skate shops are both loving and hating the the resurgence of all of this because they're used to just being able to like, you know, be a skate shop, sell yeah. your shoes, sell your, your decks and all of that. But yeah. now, you know, now they have lines down the block and things like that and yeah i know the the main sneaker shop here civil they were like very upset about how things are going with the travis scott release recently and mm-hmm. stuff and it was just so it's turned into a thing of sneaker shops getting these really exclusive shoes and they're yeah. like backdooring them they're giving them to their friends or selling them to you know friends and family yep often people who aren't gonna wear them or there's people who have created all of these bots who can buy up a sneaker before you know, you even get a chance to click your mouse. Yep. And to sell a sneaker that retailed for $120 for like eight grand on StockX is so absurd to me. And what's more absurd is that there's people paying it, right? Correct. Yeah. So that is just one of the grosser examples, I think, of things that are happening in the sneaker resale game. And it's just... I actually want to wear the shoes. 
Mm -hmm. Like, don't buy the shoes if you aren't intending to wear them. That's my biggest problem. I wish, obviously, there's no way to control it, but I wish that only people who actually wanted to wear the shoe were able to try to get the shoe. Because I would at least feel a little bit better knowing that, like, somebody else got those, like, the Kyrie Orion's belt was, like, a shoe that I really, really wanted. Yeah, yeah, Mm mm-hmm. And it, if I knew at least that like, oh, somebody else got the size 11s like, and they're wearing them right now, I would feel mm-hmm. better versus like someone's got those tucked away in a closet and they're waiting for someone to pay a thousand bucks for them when they retailed for 140. Yeah. It's just, it's out of control. It is. It is. Well, I'm, I'm with you. I subscribe to the wear your shoes. Um, I, every shoe I buy, not, I'm not just for the video, but like I, I, I wear them. I like shoes. That's what they're meant for. Yes. They're going to get creased. They're going to get dirty. It's going to, it's going to happen, but you yeah, get them yeah. to, yeah. So this idea of like them being just art pieces or status symbols, that's, yeah. that's not really for me. Yeah. Well, so that means you're not going to buy the, the red Octobers, huh? <laughs> if the, you mean resale, like there's, yeah. there's no way I'm like, no, there were like little rumors going around about them doing a re-release. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. I absolutely would have tried. Um, sure, of course. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I just can't. I can't bring myself to spend that kind of money, you know, on a shoe. Mm-hmm. I just, and I love shoes, but. Mm. Yeah, you could buy a car for the cost of some of those shoes. Exactly. It's or like the Air Mags, something like that. Yeah. Like, oh. I can't pay $36,000 for a pair of sneakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what? it's, it's got to be where 36000 feels like $360 to you. So, I mean, talking, to, talking about access and whatever, that's a yeah. it's another level of, of money that neither of us will ever see in our lifetime. Nope. <laughs> no one we know <laughs> will ever see that type of money. So, um, well, it's a weird question to ask anybody, but what's next for you, Alex? What's going on in your life, you know, aside from the four walls? <laughs> you know, just uh, finishing writing my dissertation is is the main thing that I'm doing these days. Um, looking for new sneakers. Uh, doing, I always do a lot of cooking, but I've been kind of falling in love with cooking again during mm. quarantine and just really trying to be mindful about the way I am in the kitchen. Um, sure. Yeah, just like just like most of us are doing, trying to figure out strategies for making it through such a strange time. For sure, for sure. Is there anything you want to plug? A uh, website, a uh, blog, uh, a mixtape? I would say that to anybody, all right? Please don't think you're just, <laughs> you're just saying the black guy in his mixtape. But he did say he writes beats, all right? So visit his SoundCloud, I'm assuming. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you can visit my SoundCloud. <laughs> oh, yeah, see? Take that, haters. I was not intending to plug the SoundCloud. Um, Do you have a cool DJ name? Or is it just like DJ Blue? The uh, Blue the Fifth, which is, it's not, it's, that's pretty good. It, but it's, that. but it's my actual name, right? So I think that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so I yeah, it works. It's not a stage name. It's my actual name. Um, I guess I have an article in a journal called Current Musicology, and it's an mm-hmm. article on like Beats by Dre headphones and, <laughs> and, um, how kind of, the use of blackness to sell products. Um, so I would recommend, you know, go read my wow. article, go read my article in current musicology. If you, 
search my name, Alex Blue V, you'll find it. Um, I'll try. I might link it in the description notes. That way, people want to because I want to read that. I mean, yeah, good for Dre for making a bazillion dollars off of headphones, but come on. Yeah, and it, it particularly is talking about those "Hear What You Want" advertisements from a few years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the article's called "Hear What You Want." Um, oh, so okay, yeah, I'll I'll let that be the thing that I plug. Cool, awesome. Well, that that's fun. That's exciting. Well, um, I say this to everyone, but I really mean it this time. Alex, it has been a pleasure to have you here today. You're an absolute delight. We uh, we covered a lot of ground. I'm very curious to see what, if any, response, if, and based on your conversation, nothing will happen. People will listen to it and agree and nod their heads and go, yeah, and then the actions they don't take will do, will speak exactly what you said, right? <laughs> they, they will. I would love to. I would love to see a change in that pattern, but... You know, I got to see it first. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, it's tough. So um, I don't I don't have any quirky, fun ways to sign off the the podcast because it got really serious for a second. So maybe <laughs> if you want to say something funny or a joke or or whatever, we can sign off with a laugh. Um, yeah, I think things maybe just got realer than I thought as well. So no. Oh, do we want to edit that out or what? Uh I mean, <laughs> we'll we'll see how the analytics go. All right. Well, you know, if 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 we cancel you or not, I'm just kidding. We won't cancel. <laughs> um, well, well, we'll stay safe and healthy. Enjoy your uh, your Zoom bartending thing tomorrow night. Will do. And you stay safe as well. I really enjoyed it. This episode of Sketchbook Podcast was recorded in Austin, Texas and Providence, Rhode Island, and was edited and produced by me, Daniel Monthoy Jr. in Austin, Texas. Our logo is created by John Suh of Purpose Designs, and our music is provided by Epidemic Sound. If you enjoy Sketchbook, tell a friend about the show or share a link on social media. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, and you might find your review featured on a future episode. Got questions, comments, suggestions, or concerns? Email us at sketchbookpodcasts at gmail.com. It too could be featured on a future episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SketchbookPod and join the Sketchbook community on Facebook at Sketchbook Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Sketchbook Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thanks for listening.